Well, good morning. Um, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the pastors here on uh, our elementary school students who are still in the room. If you are out through those doors, your teachers will be waiting for you to go learn much of Jesus this morning. And I trust we can do the same here as well. In order to do that, I would love for you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that one of our ushers gets you a Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 in the second half of your Bible in the New Testament. Um, And let let me set some context for us. For those of you who have been with us, you know that um, we have been exploring the Old Testament a bit together, looking at Old Testament stories, understanding how they point to us to Jesus. Uh, it was put on the heart of our leadership here at our Logan Square campus, though, that as, as much as we believe that God speaks to us exactly what we need from His Word, there are times to be more exact about what it is that the people of God need to hear. And so today we want to go to Ephesians 2 and ask questions that I, I imagine that your Facebook page, your Twitter account, your Instagram account, perhaps your parents, your family, all the news articles that came out were forcing you to consider. And you might say, well, it didn't force me to consider anything, and that, that's also why I want us to gather around this word, because some of us in this room are hurting this morning. <laughs> in particular, as we sang one of those songs this morning about how God never lets go, I imagine many of you looked around this weekend and said, it sure seems like it. It sure seems like he's forgotten us. A number of months ago, the state of Virginia made a decision to take down a uh, statue of Ulysses S. Grant that was in Lee Park, which is renamed Emancipation Park. They voted to take it down, and yet there was a six-month stay on that verdict, on that ruling, and so the statue still stands. In sort of solidarity of showing their desire for that statue to be taken down of a Confederate general, that, that really gives a picture of a, histor- a history of our country, but one that many of us, if not all of us, I pray, would refuse to be a part of a story of our future, something that we must repent of of our past and move forward in our future. And yet, because it still stands, there are a number of demonstrators surrounded it, continuing to voice their desire to see that statue taken down in order to really see a healthy step forward for the American people. As they stood there late Friday night, a group of white supremacist, racist people decided to get together, light torches, tiki torches, and in a matter of fear, not only marched yelling blood and soil, and you will not replace us, but then surrounded that group that surrounded the statue and intimidated and shouted and made sure that they understood that white people were more important than them. That, for many of us, myself included, is easy to move on from. And, and please, please hear me, my critique of white culture in this moment, and perhaps in this sermon, is not because I have forgotten what color my skin is. It's because for the very first time, I'm starting to see the implications of it. So please understand, this is not meant to come at you. Us, historically, a very white church in a very multi-ethnic, transient neighborhood, we need to hear not about a political issue, not about a racial issue, because every issue is a gospel issue before it's anything else. Please don't miss this. 
Yes, there are racial underpinnings. Yes, there are political underpinnings. But this is a human issue. So what we will not do in Logan Square in Chicago is say that's a Virginia problem. What we will not do, and I want to say this as a white pastor, this is not an African-American problem. This is not a problem for those who are oppressed and really victimized by this racial injustice. We shouldn't go to them and go, what's the solution? They're like, we didn't create the problem. So what we believe, this is, this is why I love the Bible. This is what I love. I love my job. Because I get to do the same thing every weekend. But today I pray that I get to do it in a way perhaps that for the very first time you will see the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus in a way that you've never seen them before. At times, if you're white, you might feel like I'm speaking directly to you. Would you please accuse the Holy Spirit of knowing your heart way better than I do? And listen to him. And perhaps if your skin color is different than mine, I'm, I'm going to miss something and not say it quite right. And a thank you for those of you who are my friends who constantly are helping me to see the implications of my own narrow-mindedness, of my own failure to consider what it is to be white in America. Because in doing so, then I've failed to see every other color as God has created them to be the shining spectacle of his glory in this world. And so we're going to do what we do every week with this particular context. We're going to come to the word of God. Please don't get it twisted. There's not another place that we go when, when emotions run high. We go to the same place. See, we're a community that is constantly celebrating and constantly sorrowful. Because isn't it true? Some of us come Sunday morning, you're like, last week, my week was terrible. This week, it's actually pretty good. Well, regardless of where you are today, we come to the exact same posture. And I hope that you've sensed the tone of our gathering, that it is one of constant, and I, I pray, humble hesitation into stepping into this particular conversation because we desperately need to understand what does the gospel have to say to this. So that's what I want to do. Now that I've rattled you a little bit, and hopefully you're a little bit uncomfortable, or perhaps you're finally relieved that we're going to talk about it because you've been talking about it your entire life. I want to go to God. I want to ask, God, would you show us what's true? Would you show us what is beautiful? Would you show us what is right? Would you show us what it means to be human beings made in the image and likeness of God and ultimately what it means to be a church? Because you see, as a church, we do not simply speak against injustice. We stand the gap for those who are victims of injustice. So we are a community of people that we don't just have words. Today, it might feel like we just have words, and I realize that. But I desire that you hold me accountable, that we hold one another accountable, that we would not be just a community of words, but a community built on the word. Therefore, we can do nothing less but to act based on what we believe the word of God teaches us. So please, let's go to prayer and ask that God would do what only he can, help us to see the truth and beauty of his word. Heavenly Father, we come in many different ways. Some of us are coming with tears this morning because we saw something perhaps just in pictures, perhaps just in video last night, but nevertheless was the incarnation of evil and hatred, self-glory. Father, we also want to ask that you would help us. Many of us can feel like, well, that's not my issue. That's something else that really doesn't touch me. God, we pray that you'd help us to know as a church that if this touches the life of one brother or one sister, then it is a family issue. This is a church issue. Of which I want to confess, Father, that as a churchman, as growing up in the church, I have long hesitated when it came to such issues. I have long been fearful 
more of the implications than overwhelmed with joy that your word speaks a better word in the midst of injustice. And so, God, we don't come to crucify anybody today because Jesus has already done that willingly, lovingly. This is not about finding out who did something wrong and making sure they pay for it, but it's seeing it, looking at the one who paid it all. The one who did such a work that we can all sing together, it is well with my soul. Though my flesh is weak, though my feet may fail, your word endures. And so God, build us up today in your word. Build up my Latino brothers and sisters in your word. Build up my Chinese brothers and sisters in the word. Build up my Korean brothers and sisters in the world. Word. Build up my African-American brothers and sisters in the world. Build up my white brothers and sisters in the word today so that we might be that brilliant mosaic of your people. Anchored in your word more richly today, perhaps, Father, than ever before. Would you do that for your own glory and our good, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Let me first, before we get to the word, simply say that I think a lot of times we can see what we saw this weekend and say, that's not me. We can say, that's not me. And thanks be to God, as much as I know all of you, that certainly is not you. Perhaps you don't even have a tiki torch that you are ready to light, so you are saying, that is not me. I don't do that stuff. And what very quickly can be a line of standing with becomes a line of self-righteousness of saying that that's not me. See, that might not be you, but can I tell you, can I help us understand what is us? What is underneath the surface is a seed of that kind of hate. And I know like, that's like real talk down to the bare bones. Like That's not in me. Yes, it is. And what I want to do this morning is show you how that evil, that vengefulness, that venom is down deep down within the human soul, and yet God did something about it. And we won't understand the work of God until we understand the folly of humanity. We won't understand what God has done for us and therefore what he wants to do through us until we realize who we were by grace, now who we are. And so that's why I want to go to Ephesians chapter 2. So look at it with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the pattern of this world, or the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see how there's no wiggle room? You see how for many of us, and my white brothers and sisters in particular, right, you go, that's not me. The scriptures say, yes, it is. Let that marinate. Please let that marinate. That is who you are. That is who I am. That there is this wrathfulness, this, this disobedience in my heart. There is this deadness in me. That might simply materialize in you lying to your coworkers, 
or you being deceptive with your spouse, or you being puffed up in your own religiosity. It might simply be just this little whisper of self-reliance and self-righteousness, but all of that is idolatry. And all of that is the seed by which we see these sorts of things that all of mankind, all of humanity is plagued by the brokenness of the human soul that we are born into. There are certain sins we learn, but the bedrock of sin we are born with. There are certain sins that we learn, that we are taught, but there the bedrock of sin is something we are born into. The foundation where all of this, the soil, if you will, where all of these seeds sprout and grow is something that we are born into. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing to an interesting crowd. He's writing to Gentile Christians. That means non-Jews. He's writing predominantly to non-Jews who have become followers of Jesus, and he is reminding them from whence they came, who they are, and it's not good news. You're like, preacher, that's uncomfortable. Then you're hearing me. It's massively uncomfortable. It should absolutely unnerve you. One of the problems with us, many of us Christians, or perhaps if we simply call ourselves Christians, we've never been unnerved by the depravity of our heart. Therefore, we never rejoice with the good news of Jesus. See, we never sing songs of freedom because we forgot that we've been liberated. Because we were never bound, were we? See, what my Bible says, what the Bible says, is that we were all dead in our trespasses and sin. That means you are not about to get up and start doing good things. Dead means dead in the original language. You can't do anything. You cannot do anything of moral good. You cannot do anything that ultimately of salvific or saving good. You cannot resurrect yourself. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. I'm so glad that's not the only thing the Bible says. Can I get an amen? But it does say that. Can I get an amen still? Amen. Verse 4 continues with some good news for you and me. But that's really good. Stop right there. Isn't it really good that once you finally admit that this seed of dysfunction and hate and evil is in my heart, there is this massive but God that shows up. That it was while you were dead. In that condition, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes, but God. Can you imagine if you're reading this for the very first time? Think about that. You're like, I've heard this before. That's the problem. You've forgotten how beautiful it is. Ephesians chapter 2, can you imagine if you're reading this before? You're like, oh, now we're part of the people of God, Gentile Christians, non-Jews. I can't believe that we're, but, but Paul is reminding me from whence we came that I was dead in my trespasses and how overwhelming, how heavy that burden of sin is on your shoulders and you really admit it. And then how beautiful are the words but God. See, one, one of the reasons... I've learned from some of my African-American brothers and sisters, the reason that they sing those old spirituals with so much joy is because their heritage was one that in the church gathering, that was the only place they were tr truly free. It was the only place that they were truly free. And so they sing some of the best songs the church has ever sung. And you want to know why white people have a really hard time writing really great music sometimes? It's because we forgot that we too were enslaved to our sin. We sing, we sing and write songs as if we have always been free people. That's the problem. You aren't. We are all enslaved to sin. To be sure, we cannot identify with everybody's story, but what the gospel does here, what the Ephesians 2 does here, is it puts us all on level playing ground. We are all dead in our trespasses and sin. But God. But God. 
Am I getting too racial yet? I'll stop, I'll stop talking about race when the Bible does, okay? But God, being rich in mercy, that means he's about to give you something that you don't deserve because you're dead, right? Somebody say dead. Okay, some more of you say dead. Dead. You were dead and dead in the original language means what? Dead. You weren't about to get up. You weren't about to do something awesome, right? That's when God was going to be rich in mercy, to give you something that you do not deserve and withhold from you what you did deserve, which is what? Death. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice it didn't say because of the great love with which you loved him. It says because of his love. God is motivated to save us and to come and free us because of his love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of this grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You're saved by grace. Don't get it twisted. You weren't about to do good. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, and that's when God loved you. That's when God showed you mercy. He saved you and seated you in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Because of the work of Christ, you are resurrected. You are put to new life, to new family, to new hope, and to new joy in Jesus. Not based on your works, but based on the work of God. This is the work that Jesus does for those by grace through faith. So what are you boasting about? Isn't that interesting that Paul has to say, so you have nothing to boast about? How in the world would we think after we're dead in our trespasses and sin that God raises us by the work of Christ? You think, man, I am pretty awesome. Let me tell you all the ways that you're welcome Jesus, right? How do we do that? How do we get to that place? I mean, real talk. How do we ever just go, Jesus did some good things, but so did I. Jesus might have risen me from the dead, but, but he really wanted me on his team because I contribute. I contribute to the spiritual kingdom in this world because I've got really great. T- well, how do we do that? From what, what passage do you go? You know what? You're welcome because I'm on your team, so you're welcome, God. How do we boast in anything but Christ? Because of the soil we were born into, because of the foundation we were born into. Are you tracking with me yet? It's persistent, isn't it? begin to boast in other things like our ethnicity. What's amazing about this, this narrative is it's even used by white supremacists to prove the validity of their claims, that there's a particular skin color that God favors over others. I want to be like, dude, this is how you speak to white supremacists, right? Dude, how in the world Do you take a letter predominantly written to non-Jews, those who are left outside of the camp, and say, only we who are inside of the camp should be welcomed in? How do you boast in anything else? Now, again, before we crucify somebody else, this is what we do all the time. 
We find all kinds of ways in our own heart to boast in ourselves. Ephesians leaves no room for that. He spends entire chapter one saying how you were predestined according to the work of his grace, not your awesomeness. Over and over and over again, God so graciously says, I'm going to save you because of me, not because of you. Why is that good news? Because however you are saved is how you are kept. The power that saves you is the power that keeps you. Whatever you trust to establish your hope will be the thing you must anchor your life in to keep your hope. Therefore, I'm going with Jesus. Jesus is the one, if he is the one who redeems me, if he's the one who saves me, then he's the one who keeps me too. This is why we become so vigilant about our idols, about the things that we trust in more than Jesus, because we know that if I lose this idol, I'll lose my life again. Paul continues on. Look at verse 10. After all of this, what's, this is what's amazing about the trajectory of where Paul is going with this claim that we have nothing else to boast. There's no one that can boast except boasting in Christ, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Workmanship is a beautiful word. In the original language, it's where we get our word poem poetry. We're his workmanship. It's, it's this picture of God weaving together, working together, bringing about this mosaic, this picture of otherwise disconnected or falling apart things. He weaves them together as his prize creation. He makes this. That, that word shows that God is the one who is actively creating, that God is the one who is weaving, that God is the one who is writing, that God is the one who is wrapping, that God is the one who is flowing, that God is the one who is making this beautiful display of his glory, and it's beautiful and it's true. Here's workmanship. Imagine that you Gentiles once left outside of the commonwealth, but now brought back in, not as second-class citizens, but as part of the workmanship of God's glory. See, God is speaking through Paul about another ethnicity, other groups of people being welcomed into the people of God as a part of his workmanship, not second-class citizens. He continues on, I believe, speaking about this point. That's why he says, therefore, in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is how gracious is God. After all of this work, he says, remember Remember, two times. Remember what I've just said, because how quickly we forget. How quickly we forget. How quickly we begin to boast in something other than Christ. How quickly we begin to anchor our lives in something other than Christ. How quickly we move away from being the workmanship of God. Did you notice it? Having a work of our flesh. Flesh is something that is not coincidental, that constantly is speaking back to the works of religion something that we incarnate, something that we live out, some way that we organize our lives that is based on what we do with our hands, not what God has done with his. Are you tracking on the distinction? God says, you are my workmanship, the work that I've done through my son Jesus, and remember that because otherwise you're going to build something by your own flesh that you will think is more beautiful and more true than ultimate reality that I've created. Are you tracking with that? It's an amazing juxtaposition of the language. 
is that Paul uses this word workmanship to say you are put together by God, so stop trying to put yourself together by your own flesh. Remember that. You will be tempted day in and day out to simply define and organize your life based on who you are in and of yourself and forget that you are a workmanship, a beautiful piece of poetry that God wrote before the foundation of the world to highlight his glory, his beauty, and his truth. Because when we work with stuff in our hands, notice what Paul says, you're like someone without God and without hope in the world. Continuing on in verse 14, excuse me, 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Please hear this. Wherever there is still racial tension and racial hostility, that is a place where we are failing to believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ has killed that hostility and brought peace. Wherever we see racial tension, racial strife, racial hostility, that is not a national issue, that is not a Virginia issue, that is not a Chicago issue, that is a human issue that the gospel speaks to through the work of Jesus. So the church, we not only must not be silent, but we must also be active in racial reconciliation and racial harmony because then and only then do we live out the full aspect of the gospel. Do you see this whole narrative that Paul is writing about is those who were not born into the same bloodline, the same people, being grafted into an eternal family where what is made? A new man. A new man. A fully fledged new creation that God has made his people that have something crazy that we don't see anywhere else. Peace. Peace. And all the different ethnicities represented in this room, isn't it true that what we desire is peace? We desire between one another is peace. The problem is none of us knows how to get it. Only this speaks the word that divides right into the midst of what we desperately need. We need the hostility in our hearts to be put to death. We don't need 12 steps. We don't need to simply be in the room together because sometimes when we get in the room, that's where all the problems are simply revealed, not solved. We need peace in our hearts. We need the reconciliation of our hearts. And only Jesus does that. Why? Because he breaks down those walls. He doesn't ignore them and say, that's just for that community, that's just for that people group, that's just for those living over there. He breaks them down. Oh, that we have a Savior who doesn't ignore hostility, he breaks it down. See, we don't have peace because Jesus is ignoring the problem. We have peace because he dealt with it and conquered it. See, notice this, that he, he nails it to the cross. He takes all of the sin, all of the shame, all of the problems, all of the tension, all of the racial strife and difficulty and pain and evil and venom. He nails all of that to the cross. It doesn't mean they disappear. It means they no longer have power over the church. 
They no longer have power over the new man, that new people group brought together under the name, fame, and banner of Jesus. Am I preaching to you yet? Therefore, the church ought to be the most multi-ethnic organization on the planet because the dividing wall of hostility has been put to death in the cross. Between me and you, African-American brother and sister, Chinese brother and sister, Korean brother and sister, white brother and sister, there is no racial stripe between us that can prevail over the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So we bring it up because he already tore it down. Are you with me yet? We bring up all of this stuff because we don't need to fear that because Jesus already put fear to death. This is why we proclaim this truth. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I want one new man that is white, black, Latino, everything. I want all of that. Why? Because one day that's how it's all going to be. Why do we think we should have a white church now when one day every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group will be under the name of Jesus celebrating him, saying glory, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. See, that's the truth tomorrow because what have Jesus done? The beautiful things that forever gets to start today. But here's why it doesn't. Help me, Lord. One of the reasons, I I, I want to break down two reasons. I've got 11 minutes and 14 seconds left, but I'm following the Spirit of God, not the clock. All right. I've got two two things that I, I really need for us to see that I believe the Lord is showing me. One is that we can overextend the value of our ethnicity, or one, we can ignore it entirely and devalue ethnicity. How do we overextend it? I think we saw that this week. Saw that this weekend. Overextending our nationality and our ethnicity puts it at the centermost place of our being. Therefore, when it is attacked, we fight back. So we don't have peace, we don't have hostility, we have hostility because ultimately that is the centerpiece of who we are. Now, white folks in particular, this is so important for us to understand. We have overextended the value of our race as white people, which we don't actually know which European country our families came from. Real talk, right? We're like, it's some of that, some of that, and a few of those over there, but ultimately, it's really white, okay? Right? And this is how I know. When we ask where you came from, you tell us states, not countries, right? Yeah, that's real talk. You're like, I don't even know which country we came from right? Okay, what's happened? We've overextended our ethnic values so much that we don't even think about it anymore. White culture has merely become normal culture in the United States. We talk about it as normal. So we actually get really frustrated when people say, why you're making this like a racial thing? And it's like, no, literally you are. We are as white folks because we're completely overvaluing it so much that we don't even talk about it anymore because that's just the standard operating procedure in the United States. Let me break it down for us this way. Help me, Lord. It wasn't until six years old that I realized I was white. And I learned about that in another country. Now, you might say that's a really young age. Perhaps for some of you, you learned a long time ago. The reason I I finally realized it is because I lived in a little town in, in Illinois where I was born in Galesburg. And everybody around me was white. So I didn't have white friends, I just had friends. I didn't go to white grocery stores, I went to grocery stores. I didn't watch white movies, I just, I watched movies. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down yet? I didn't listen to white music, I listened to music. Right, and all of that stuff, really when you step back and look at it, was all what? White. Therefore I went to another country with a ton of Filipino kids and they're like, you're white. And I'm like, no I'm not. Oh wait, I, I know I look different than you. 
what are you? They're like, we're Filipino. You're in our country, right? You, you came to our country. Great research, kid. Great research. I just got in a plane. And all of a sudden, I had to deal with the implications of that. But here's to the point where I think that it needs to go even further. I was in a predominantly African-American neighborhood the other day going to a restaurant that predominantly African-Americans go to. And I was sitting there going, oh my gosh, I'm the only white person here. And <laughs> it, was, it was very strange. And there was this strange, like, so now you know how we feel, but at the same time, you don't feel threatened, do you? And I said, no, I just am noticing like I'm the only one. See, just because even when we as white folks are in the minority numerically, we are never actually in the minority in terms of power. I could be the only white person in the room, and to me that actually is a sign of power and privilege, not a power that I'm threatened by. I can't even understand, I can't even get there because I just presume that whiteness is normal. This is a really hard thing for the church to engage with. Because sometimes we're singing white worship songs and we just think they're songs for the church. Sometimes we can preach Ephesians chapter 2 and never talk about ethnicity because Paul's talking about white people, right? He's talking about every other race other than Jew. No, he's not talking about white people. So we can overextend the importance of our ethnicity. And when we do that, what we've created is an idol. And what idols love for us to do is to trick us that they don't even exist. I heard it said recently that the devil's best trick is to prove to you he doesn't exist. He would love for you to think he doesn't exist. He can keep doing his work in the shadows and you always have every explanation except that. I think the evil one loves when we don't admit, white folks, our racial story and that we have a racial impact and that we have a culture. And please just look in Logan Square. Let me really break it down. There are particular restaurants that are starting to show up in our neighborhood, and you might celebrate and go, that's great. Look at everybody who's at that restaurant. We're in a predominantly, historically Latino neighborhood, and all of a sudden, a great restaurant shows up right next to two or three other Latino restaurants. We don't even know the names of them, but we sure love that spot that, that's pushed right in the middle of all of them. That's not wrong, but what I am saying is we are not conscious of that, and that tells us we believe that white is normal, not white is another cultural imprint that we must think about in a multi-ethnic neighborhood. So we can overextend ethnicity, or we can devalue it. Where I have done this personally, and I must ask for your forgiveness in this, is I've told everybody, just come to Jesus and he'll give you a new identity. And we all should just be one in Christ, right? And just lay down your ethnicity and ultimately just come to Jesus. What am I saying? Become a white Christian, if I've overextended race and now I'm devaluing race, and we even say things like this, we mean it so much with love, I'm colorblind, I don't see, are, are you kidding me? That's like the biggest lie ever, that you're colorblind. Why would we ignore what God has made beautiful? Why would we ignore all the different shades and tones and perspectives and cultures and go, I don't see any of that? God's like, I made awesome stuff, look at it. I made beautiful people, look at them. It was meant to be the work of his hand. It was meant to be a masterpiece. It was meant to be a poem. You're meant to see color. You're meant not to judge it or devalue it based on color. That's a massive difference, but it's a lot harder, isn't it? That's why we don't do it. And so we can just say, let's just reach our own. Let's reach the people in our church who make the most sense. Let's reach the people who are like us. And you know what happens in Chicago? Nothing. We just move along with the cultural norms. 
See, when we overextend race, we fail to believe the gospel. When we devalue race, we fail to believe the gospel. And it's in that moment while we were dead in our trespasses and sin that God saved us. It was while we overextended, while we devalued, while we did all of that work that ultimately that is when God saved us. See, this is why we need not crucify white people or any other people group because Jesus already died for us. Jesus already went to the cross on our behalf. Therefore, those dividing walls of hostility and blindness that cause division, Jesus said, I conquered all of those. So you can come and be totally vulnerable. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fear. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we can come together. Why? Because Jesus has tied us together. Look what he's done. You still with me, church? You all right? You good? Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a picture. What a picture is that now as Jews and Gentiles, Paul says, you're coming as fellow citizens. That fellow citizens means it's like you have the same hometown. In the literal language, it's like you have the same hometown. In other words, that your primary motivation, your primary understanding of your identification in the first position is your redeemed sonship or daughtership underneath the banner of Jesus Christ. That is your first identity. But from that, from that flows this beautiful diversity, this beautiful difference in culture and distinctions that is not a threat to the gospel, it celebrates the gospel. So when we sing in different languages and when we come together as different people, it celebrates the gospel, especially in this city. Why? Because nowhere else are all kinds of different people getting together, but the church should be the place. Not where we're just in close proximity and we sit close together in fourth grade seats, but we actually are fellow citizens in order to do what? The work of God. I wonder if we are not doing the work of God in Chicago is because we still have built up barriers of hostility between ethnicities. Why we don't see guns going down is because we're building up walls of racial reconciliation that, that are no longer there. I wonder if one of the reasons we keep praying the same prayer is because we refuse to actually talk to our neighbor who looks different than us. We keep wondering where God is and he's saying, I'm right here and I put you together as fellow citizens in order to do this work. I'm dreaming about this church. I'm dreaming about becoming a people. It's really hard. I know. It's so much easier to build a white church and not worry about it. But whatever we put together like that, that will be a part of the work that we accomplish. We want to speak a better word than that, that the gospel actually doesn't just simply bring together like-minded people. In fact, what the gospel does is it brings close those who are far off. That in every other context, you might be far off. Here, you start singing the same songs, Right? You deal with all kinds of awkwardness when you talk about your favorite music. You're like, country music, really, that's special. Okay, great, that, that's very important. Oh, and you like the hip-hop. Okay, um, that, that's interesting as well. And we literally begin to just feel that thing and learn what it is. We should not all wear the same things. We should all have all kinds of different things that we wear because we're following different cultural trends and identities. We should have all this wonderful thing. And when all of that comes together, do you know what it's like? A masterpiece, a poem, a brilliant story that we are incarnating together as the masterpiece of God because we're all fellow citizens. 
We all say, I've got the same hometown as you, even though we look different. And in fact, the next step would say, I've got a hometown because we look different. I've got the same hometown because we look different, because that's the work that Jesus does. He brings together every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and he does it because we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. What's this look like? I was overwhelmed yesterday when I looked at my daughter and my son. Let me just tell you how this struck me. I looked at my daughter and my son, and they probably had no idea what was going on. They're white kids, by the way, just so we're clear. They're probably whiter than me, um, at least just as. And I had to look at my daughter and, I, and my son and say, do you know that you're white? You might say that's, that's funny, but it's really important. Say, do you know that you're white? And they said, yes. And I said, is that okay? And they were silent. <laughs> they didn't know what to do. And I said, do other people have different colors of skin? And he said, yes, daddy. And I said, is that, is that bad? No, daddy. Is that good? Yes, daddy. It's really good. Why? Because God made him that way. And you might think that's just a simple thing, but can I tell you what? If we raise up children that see the image of God that puts, is put on display through the various ethnicities, not despite them, but through the various cultures, through the various different races, can you imagine what the church will look like in just a couple of years? This is how we begin to not break down the dividing walls of hostility, but to believe that Jesus already has, to understand that Jesus already has done it. What it might mean for you is actually admitting, acknowledging, doing some hard work, like, Lord, show me the cultural imprint that I have. What it might mean for others is to hang in with us. We're learning as a church what it is to speak into these things, and we want to hear, because ultimately what I believe about the gospel is that if we are all one kind of people, we will never see the gospel fully that it was always meant to be understood in diverse community. It was always meant to be enjoyed in diverse community. And it's only when we understand the gospel in diverse community and all of its aspects and beauties and truths, it's only then that the workmanship of God, the people of God, will appropriately do the work of God. With that in mind, I felt like it was appropriate. We felt like it was appropriate to end our sermon time in simply reflecting on that. We're going to get to the table to communion in a minute. Phil will lead us in that. But I want us just to be still in complete silence, listening to the Lord and just saying, Lord, what is it that I need to hear from this morning? Now, for some of you who think, well, this was just all about white people, trust me, it's not. I, I want our African-American, Latino, and Asian brothers and sisters to overhear the gospel as applied to our white culture so that they might understand what it looks like for all of us together as people to walk in this, because this is what they have been communicating to one another for a long, long time, and we need to catch up. That the gospel is what ties us together, and that through our different and diverse ethnic stories, it shines brightly. So I want to do the hard thing with you is I want to let the Spirit of God actually lead this church in this diverse, transitional neighborhood so that we, His workmanship, would look like His workmanship and would accomplish His work. So would you just take a couple of minutes, reflect, and ask the Lord to speak to you?